This episode is supported by The Bentway, presenting new monuments for new cities, an ongoing series of free tours exploring selected works in the current exhibition. Each guided excursion is led by a different Torontonian, artists, designers, planners, community members, and active urbanists, reflecting on the Bentway's layered histories, potential futures, and the city itself. All tours are free, running on select Tuesdays from 6.30 till 7.30 p.m. Upcoming tours will be led by Michelle Pearson-Clark, Susan Blight, and Ellie Joseph. For more information and to book your tour, please visit thebentway.ca. That's T-H-E-B-E-N-T-W-A-Y dot C-A. Welcome to MoMA's The Podcast. We are your hosts, Lauren Wetmore and Sky Gooden. As we carry on with our season-long exploration of the question, what makes great art, Sky sat down with Jin Bronwyn Lee, an artist based in Chicago. Jin and Sky were introduced by a mutual friend who knew they'd have a lot in common. Yeah, we met at the Art Institute of Chicago like an hour before I had to give a talk and I'd just come through the rain. I was a bit lost. So I kind of couldn't believe I was taking a moment to meet basically a stranger to walk through a massive museum. But I'm so profoundly glad I did. Jin is sort of a still center of the earth person and she drove me past some of the more celebrated works to the less likely ones and then poured over their winning attributes. She made me laugh and she made me think differently. She's a painter too, so there's an attention she brings to looking. Here is Sky talking to Jin Bronwyn Lee. I guess I, I might want to start there. I, I want I would love to hear you talk a bit about your relationship to that museum and how you've come to navigate it and know the paintings that you love. So when I met you at that museum, I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to maybe walk through some of the things that I've walked through in my head. I spent um, a lot of time in that museum, and usually it was during lunch hours. Um, I went to the School of the Art Institute. Um, I did my undergraduate study there. And I also worked, you know, for the admissions office, you know, in my 20s. And I so I spent a lot of time walking through. And oftentimes it wasn't very long. So I started to pick one thing to look at. And when you walk through the museums for a long time, you get good at avoiding large crowds of people. So mm-hmm. you naturally avoid the, you know, the big guns. There's a point where something catches your eye in your periphery. You start to see a painting in a different way. And then the places that you can hide in front of. And then you start to really pay attention to the B-sides of things. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever the museum or institution sets it as a B-side. The way they're placed and, you know, and, and, the, and the space around them. Mm-hmm. And then I started to really look at Cezanne. And um, the room that I took you, we looked at Cezanne's, um, you know, tabletop of apples. And then we also looked at Madame Cezanne. I don't know. I paced back and forth those two paintings and I took you there because I always thought, what a strange way to break up planes. Whether he uses apples, flowers, vase, tabletop, or whether he's painting his wife, there's something strange happens in the treatment of the figure of the shapes of forms or apples. The treatment is one is that everything serves the function or the purpose of um, breaking up the planes and hiding things in plain sight. And that's what I really loved. Um, this idea that you're presented with 
a picture and then it's easy to walk by apples, flowers, vase. Okay. But then at, at certain points you start to see what's hidden behind the paintings. And I'm not saying hidden behind it like this, you know, mysterious way. And it's like gifting you, um, after a while, I mean more like the way the painting is structured or painted in layers in stages, it walks you through a passage of something. And, you know, when, when a picture gives you a little bit more than what it presents and sort of asks you to stay longer, you know, that's the point where I, you know, the, the small surprises happen and the weirdness happens. And, um, and then you see the plane break and rupture in this way where the picture starts to move and shift and situate themselves a little bit like it's an architecture. I'm, I'm watching a building sort of fall apart in beautiful stages. As a painter, is your relationship to painting uh, consistently one of um, learning, do you find? Like, do you take it personally uh, when, you're, when you're viewing? I always say I'm a reader and I'm a listener. I'm not a musician, I'm not a writer, but I read and I listen. And I think painting, I approach it, approach it the same way. You know, when it becomes personal is when I actually listen to a certain album or I think about a certain architecture before I paint. When I'm about to sort of uh, dive into a project, I, I listen and I think about other things that has a huge relationship to painting. And then when I, you know, want to talk to other people about what it means to really read a picture, then that's when I talk about the painting the way we did. So to answer your question, is it personal? How do you mean? I suppose I mean in the way of, well, for instance, as a writer, I find that it's, um, it is possible for me to read and not be thinking about the way I write. But it kind of requires oftentimes that I'm reading fiction or some other genre that doesn't immediately link up with the kind of writing that I do in criticism and, and art. Um, with painting, is there, is there a space that you can enter mentally where you aren't uh, sort of bounding back to your studio practice as you look? There are moments when I look at other, you know, paintings, um, I forget about my own practice because it just feels quite dumb to think to be projecting your own sort of agenda when you're looking at something that makes you forget, you know, the artist itself. Like I, I think um, Oscar Wilde said something, I'm going to butcher what he said exactly, but you know, the, the aim of art is to conceal the artist um, ultimately, you know, to something else other than the person who painted it and the thing that's presenting, you know, right in front of you. And I think that there's, there are paintings like that. Um, if I can give like a small example, there's a, it's a small example, like metaphorically, literally, it's a tiny painting that I saw um, in Berlin and it's by uh, Peter Bruegel, uh, the elder. It's called The Two Chained Monkeys um, from 1562. And it's literally a picture of um, two small monkeys chained on the windowsill, you know, with a seascape behind them. And to me, I thought this painting, um, you know, revealed a certain condensed um, and a very simple idea of what painting is, how potent it could be through very simple forms. So, you know, if, if we see painting already as this, you know, window, right? Window through, elusive window that we enter into. You know, we, I, I came to this particular painting and you, you look through a painted window or an archway of some sort 
And then you see two creatures, two monkeys, you know, very close to humans chained there as you look through this, what is behind them, which is a seascape. And then at a certain point, I think that I start to believe that the, the seascape I threw behind the two chained monkeys on the windowsill is maybe also painted. Meaning, I know that it's already a painting that's painted, but it's alluding to the fact that they're maybe chained by the windowsill with a painted seascape. Mm. And so, you know, it's a triple illusion. It's, it's a window, which is the painting. You look through the window, you look behind them, and there's an illusion of a seascape inside the actual painting. To me, this is a very simple and a beautiful way um, to sort of illustrate painting talking to itself in a way. Uh, and if we could circle out a bit, too, I would love to hear a bit more about uh, your relationship to literature and poetry. Um, I know it's, it's these form sort of um, arterial veins for for your practice and for your thinking. Uh, can you talk to me a bit about where that um, began, The not just your love of reading, but its relationship to art? Writing and literature they, you know, you know, you have set of structures, set of words that you use. Everyone's using the same, you know, same set of words, but something else happens and something, you know, a meaning gets floated out or it's something gets captured in between. You can talk about time in an interesting way. You know, words and images um, are both, uh, you know, signs and signifiers. And while it's being explicit, it can do multiple other things. And um, I started to think about the way we communicate, we use words, and how can we turn words into a picture? How can you, um, you know, decide on a set of structures, color, texture, um, or what something looks like, you know, uh, through words? Because then you have to look through things. Like you have to look through a structure just like you experience a building uh, or a church. Um, can you talk to me about your your best experience with a work of art or the moment at which you kind of shuddered to recognize that it was working at, at the peak of its capacity? So let's see. I, I think I think about looking at things through space, whether I'm reading something, listening something, or looking at something. I think it always, all goes back to um, structure and space and both literal and metaphorical. And I think space can bear its own uh, detailed forecast. So let's say like a specific architecture has its own weather. Um, and I mean, um, weather by, um, I had an opportunity to, uh, walk through Rome and with a dear friend, um, he's an architect looking at, you know, this Italian Baroque architect, Borromini in particular, and my partner and I were chasing after paintings, um, all of the Caravaggio paintings in Rome. And this one particular day, um, Carl took us to two Borromini churches. One is called San Ivo and another San Carlo. And, you know, when you walk, walk around Rome, um, visiting all the Baroque churches um, from 17th century, you start to have like flowers and uh, baby angel butts coming out of your eyeballs. Like you, you see so much stuff, so much fabric and twists and turns and just lots of decoration and gold. But these two particular churches that he took us to, you walk in and there's nothing. The church is not decorated with any paintings. It's just white space 
um, maybe the color of a, a shadow of, you know, the color of a shadow on a white wall, slightly off white, and has this bruised yellow gold um, accents just to section particular wall to another. And um, when I was inside this church, I was kind of looking at how, um, you know, there, there are things that are visible. There's a visible Baroque patterns and, and certain logos that you can see. But then you start to think about how um, a line can simply stretch and twist in corners to fit a certain uh, symmetry in a way. Um, things are hot, you know, hidden in plain sight, meaning it's supposed to give you an illusion that's, you know, symmetrical, but then in fact, the floor is turned slightly or the wall is curved in a, in a, in a certain way to fit the floor plan probably. And so there's a structure of how it's built. And then there's another sort of agenda that's being played, um, walking through every other church in Rome and then walking into this white empty space you really start to think about shadow play on the walls. You, you think about light in a different way. And then you naturally move your eye, um, you know, up to the oculus. And this particular experience was sort of, you know, very meaningful to me because I think painting spaces can do that too. Um, and moving to, relating this to a painting that I saw uh, of a Caravaggio painting, um, I was trying to lean in to sort of see uh, you know, what the, the a detail of a painting. And then I realized that there is like a finger, finger mark, you know, like a stroke, stroke of a priest hand or something clearing away the dust off the surface of the painting. And, um, moments like that, you know, um, sort of move you in a, in a way, um, in a way that like, we're looking at something, but then something else is happening literally and metaphorically inside the space, inside the space, inside the painting. And also when you read, um, you're reading the words, but then there's something else happening. So I guess I'm wrapping this up to something invisible that could be seen through something visible. You know, the, the blindness and being able to see something, they always go hand in hand in the way you can uh, experience a building or space inside the painting or reading through something. Right. And that's a very nuanced answer, which I appreciate. I mean, it, it's a textural one because it suggests that um, a co the context, the, the time and place really uh, impose themselves on your experience of a particular work of art. So let's say the Caravaggio tours and is, is properly cleaned or something it, or is positioned in a place of stricter light. Uh, potentially you wouldn't have that same interaction with it. It wouldn't hit you the same way. I don't think so. I think that because it was such a lived object, it wasn't precious. It was, you know, situated in a spot where people walk in and out mm -hmm. all day long, every day. Mm -hmm. And um, for people visiting, it's a special thing and it's a one-time thing. But then the people living around this thing, they, they experience it. I mean, I guess it, when, when an image can be lived and you can walk by it, or sometimes you can, you know, stop in front of it, the way um, an image or space can control time and the way you spend time in front of it, the way things unfold um, slowly or fast, or the relationship between, like, time and image and space becomes complicated. Mm -hmm. um, I think those are really great moments that I think about. 
it suggests that it's not um, a situation we can try to chase down or, or replicate, that those experiences have to find you. I think that's very true. Um, it's not something you can find. I think there, there are ways to put yourself in front of something, um, to really see or listen or to look at something. And maybe it has to do with an obligation um, and a responsibility that I think about. Um, as a person, there, there are a lot of things out there. There are a lot of things in the past. There are things happening now or things that will happen um, that you just sort of have to pay attention to. So when it comes down to it, I think you have to do the detective work yourself in a way. You have to take the time that it takes. And the timing of things and the time it takes, you know, becomes um, interesting in its negotiation. Yeah, it's about paying attention simply. Right. As an artist, uh, knowing that these are the moments that uh, that catch you, how can you t- sort of try to to replicate that experience for others, or is that a pursuit in vain? Um, I think when I had an opportunity to teach this semester, I was thinking, what can I make sure that they walk away with at least one thing? You know, what can I do to make sure of that? And yes, it was a painting class and we talked about formal things and how to get to a certain point. You know, what are the tools essentially and what are some of the technical things you can think about to get to that point. But one thing that I really wanted to make sure that um, they walked away with was the so the pleasure of uh, looking at something for a long time. And I made sure I, you know, we visited the museum together um, and separately, I sent them to the museum. I think that deciding that you will spend time in front of something for a longer period of time, especially this time and age, I think it's critical. You learn about seduction of the surfaces. You learn about um, the way things can unfold. You know, the desire, seduction, and pleasure, all those things that our culture is obsessed with talking about. Um, you know, these old numbers, the dusty ones, can also talk about time in a different way. I think that for me at the moment, um, if something can present meaning um, as something that exists elsewhere other than what it's showing right in front of you visually and literally, I think that's that makes something really great or great to spend time with. Mm-hmm. I guess, uh, you know, something visually if it's reduced or condensed and I don't mean reduced and condensed that one thing is abstract and one thing isn't I don't mean that whatever it's presenting whether it's a sculpture or um if it's a head you know like a severed head versus a a dark painting that um shows itself slowly you know whether whatever it presents I look for moments when something is reduced and made unrecognizable in a surprising way um, or something that's resisting to reveal itself easily, meaning if it, it's refusing to um, reveal itself fast and everything of it. Mm-hmm. I, something radical about that um, at the moment, I think, for me, because everything is um, presented differently than how things used to be. I, I like seeing the resistance of something that wants to show itself entirely. What makes the way an artist looks at art special or different from how others might? I don't think that I have a special eye or a lens I look through um, or even 
I don't I don't consider necessarily um, that I have an art trained eye, you know, either. Um, pictures can be read by humans. Period. It's it's a matter of how. I know I I talked about encountering, you know, paintings at an institutions like uh, churches or museums, but um, there's one of experience. That's one of the experiences I I really treasure only because. For me, going to a museum is still a real treat. And the first time I ever went to a museum to see an actual painting was super late, not till I was graduating high school. Mm. That's also when, you know, where you and I met. Oh, that was the first museum experience you had? Was that the Art Institute? It was actually at the very spot. Yep. Wow. I wonder if, if we can get back to you talking a bit about presence or attention. That's it. You were talking in a really... Uh, compelling way about attention? I think ultimately, I know that humans in general like to look and touch and make noise. And in some combination of all that, um, and in combination of what we all pay attention to, making pictures happen to be my thing at the moment, because it is about paying attention. And, um, you know, at the moment, I seem to use painting as a tool to talk about what it means to read in depth. But, you know, if anyone has been a bartender or they've been a, in a service industry, you automatically learn to pay attention because you have to. Are you looping in some of your own experience there? Is that part of what has kind of helped attune your attention? Is, is industry experience in, say, the service side of things? I think, you know, you're forced to so pay attention when you work in the service industry. And if you're not particularly a people person... Well, too bad. You have to pay attention and you have to learn how to communicate. And I think lots of odd years between undergrad and graduate school, um, you know, those late nights when you talk to another person who might be an actor or who wants to get ready for school, you guys all get together and you close shop and, you know, interesting things happen where uh, paying attention becomes about a day-to-day, very mundane and practical thing and not a specialized thing. So I think that you can look at a painting the same way that you pay attention to to the road when you're walking or, um, you know, whether you pay attention to something one at a time or, you know, all or, you know, all at once uh, in a situation, you can do the same with painting and vice versa. We wanted to hear you talk a bit about the experience of having your work looked at. And is there a particular gaze that that you've had a good or bad experience with? Is there a kind of attention that you would be seeking from your audience as an artist? I think I can answer that in a short way. Um, So the bad experience or bad gaze, um, you know, being a woman of color of mixed race and mixed culture and not in obvious or explicit ways, the notion of gaze is very volatile depending on where you are and, um, you know, and where you stand literally Um, a location and also philosophically and especially also because I moved around a lot and am still moving um, you know but that's me you know me as a person and my work uh, plus what I just described a bad experience is not actually very complicated it's uh, when people don't really look at the paintings in the studio (laughs) (laughs) generally they don't look at it long enough and some, you know, are confused about their own expectations not being met in a digestible form between the person who made the work and the work. And 
sometimes they act like I pass gas in their presence, like that. <laughs> but, but I guess I do talk about like stinky subjects, like notions of funk or, um, or stench through pictures. Speaking of funk, um, a German painter, Andre Butzer, put me in a show called The Funk Shall Be With You. And I'm giving you the translated version because mm -hmm. I won't be able to say it correctly in German. But, um, but in German, funk also means to spark. And I felt like Andre really saw my work when it was not being seen at all. And then I also uh, like this idea of um, smell, a stench or funk. I recently met a writer, artist uh, named Patrick Reed, and he who said that there is something sweet about my work. And he said not sweet as in gentle and kind, but sweet as in the smell of decaying leaves or molasses. And his particular take I really appreciated because you know, this notion of smelling a certain kind of funk from a picture is a really great compliment for me as a painter to hear. And that's some unimagined set of smells from an image, like molasses and decaying leaves. It's kind of like an unknown smell that is familiar, but you can't quite put your finger on, on it right away. Mm -hmm. And and smell mm -hmm. is something that is neither here nor there, and here and there all at once. And I try to attempt at this you know, kind of thought inside my paintings. And I think a lot about funk in relationship to building an image. I um, like to think that maybe a picture can be built to refuse a, a, a quick signification, to slow things down, to show the other side or the in-between spaces, a crack, what falls between, and to think on that space and really stretch it out like a saltwater taffy pulling, you know, or like um, there's a recording of Glenn Gould playing the aria in his last re-recording of the Goldberg mm -hmm. version. And he's playing the, uh, the recording so, so much painfully slower than his first debut recording of the same song. Mm -hmm. Sort of think about that sort of stretch of a space a lot because um, if a signification of an image is slow, when you attempt to suspend and elongate meaning spatially in its duration, then the meaning is always kind of in transit because it is inherently elsewhere in another sense, like in another place. Uh, other kinds of seeing other than what you see is always in transit. and. Um, you mentioned like what expectations I may have for the viewers. And my hope is that maybe I can somehow make it vibrate and ask for a grin or, or cough, you know? It sounds like much in, in the way that you celebrate uh, kind of a textural experience with art where the environment and the point in time and sort of the frittage that you're experiencing against the work um, affects, affects your impression of it, your um, your celebration of it, a similar thing um, is is possible and like celebrated in its reception for you, where a kind of sensual textural moment is produced um, that you can can observe in your viewer. Uh, I'm very grateful for what you just said. <laughs> Momus the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish, features original music by Kyle McRae, and assistant production from Mitra Shiram. 
We would like to thank Jen Bronwyn Lee for her contribution to this episode. If you'd like to inquire about advertising opportunities or other forms of support, please contact me, Sky Gooden, at momus.ca. This has been episode 11 of Momus, the podcast. Mm-hmm.